Welcome to episode 18 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Basie, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Right, Charlotte and I are going to toast each other today at the end of, kind of the end of lockdown, with a glass of 2010 Port Noir Blanc de Blanc Champagne. We're also celebrating the fact that this week's podcast is now sponsored by the Great Wine Company. So you too can find this delicious champagne and many more on greatwine.co.uk. And they deliver anywhere in the UK. Yes, and they do have a great selection from all over the world. So there's something for every palate, biodynamic, organic and vegan wines included. Lots of Christmas offers from bubbles to warming winter classics and obviously perfect for a gift. And keep listening because just in case you thought this was all just for me and Charlotte, every listener to this podcast gets 10% off any wine or champagne till the end of January. And if you use the code BREAKOUT, all one word, capital letters, BREAKOUT, you can claim your 10% discount. It's nearly Christmas, and we all know a great British Christmas just isn't the same without a pantomime. So many have been forced to cancel, but there are several still going on this month up and down the country, from Blackburn and Blackpool to Windsor and York. Robin Hood with Craig Greville Horwood is touring, starting in Bristol and going on to Birmingham in January. But for Londoners who are feeling bereft, don't despair, because, amazingly, it's the National Theatre that has stepped into the breach with Dick Whittington, which opens on December the 11th. Now, I thought it was the first time the National has put on a pantomime, though I've learned there was a Cinderella back in the early 80s. But anyway, it just shows that the mighty National Theatre itself is prepared to bend to popular demand for the sake of our nation in need of cheering up. Now, here to tell us all about it and why the National's taken on such a heroic decision on all our behalf is one of the co-writers of Dick Whittington, Jude Christian. Good morning, Jude. Jude. Hi, hello. Now, you first wrote this with your writing partner, Cariad Lloyd, for Ed's and my local, The Lyric Hammersmith, in 2018. And I went and saw it and loved it. Now, being a regular panto goer myself, I know panto is a very local thing, specific to its community. So we're fascinated to know how you've adapted this for a much wider audience. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's it is an incredibly local thing and I think that slightly speaks to that question about why it is that the National don't normally do it. I think there's something about the space that the National Theatre holds in this country and in the kind of theatre ecology of this country where it it feels a responsibility to try and speak with and for and 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 to everyone all over the country, not just in London. And so it can be very difficult sometimes to pin down that sense of who the community is, where the in-jokes lie, who the we is that feels so crucial to doing a pantomime. You guys will know from the lyric, that thing is Hammersmith through and through. Uh, so what felt complex, but also in some ways very clear and, and very poignant about doing any any panto, but particularly this one had been, that had been so sort of localised and also Dick Whittington, which is the London pantomime, about doing that at the National this year, it feels like as a country we've 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 had a very, very complicated last few years and there's been a lot of division and suddenly coronavirus, awful as it is, has put everyone in this country through a very uh, common experience. Um, obviously, people have experienced the pandemic in very, very different ways, but suddenly there is something that we can all relate to and all of our lives have shifted in a very, very dramatic way. So it means that 
you suddenly have a real sense of a we and a real sense of stuff that we can all recognise, stuff that we all need to have a bit of a laugh about and take a bit of a load off. And have you sort of uh, adapted your lyric Hammersmith Dick Whittington to the national stage? And dare I say it, will there be any references to COVID or indeed Brexit? Uh, yes, there will. I mean, obviously, Brexit's been rolling on a while. So when we did it in 2018, that was uh, still something to to point to and make jokes about. Yeah, I would say there's there's probably three three areas of adaptation. So um, one is the one that I mentioned, which is we have a different audience. Um, there are, as well as references, there are entire um, jokes, as as I'm sure Charlotte will remember, that that belong to the lyric. And in fact, when we did Dick Whittington there, it was, it was their 10th anniversary of that particular run of doing Panto. So there was a lot of stuff that just, it felt like it belonged to Hammersmith and it would be weird to take it to the National and pretend it belonged there. Um, so there was a sort of un-Hammersmithing and more broadening out into London um, approach. There was a very technical uh, shift, which is that the Olivier Auditorium has been configured into the round. Um, which makes it actually a brilliant space to do panto because when you put a space that big in the round, you have a real sense of connectedness. So can I just interrupt quickly and ask there then, are you still grabbing poor, unfortunate dads and dragging them on the stage? As, you know, panto always does. Are you allowed to do that? We're not allowed to go and grab people, which will probably oh. come as a relief <laughs> to, a, to a lot of potential audience members. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're looking for ways as much as we can to keep people involved and keep people interacting. And I think it's a really interesting challenge because you're on the one hand you're going how can we reference the liveness of this art form normally but also you're going what's the point of referencing things that we're all a bit sad that we can't do properly so yeah there's a lot of modifying around that and I guess that leads into yeah the the third area of development I mean it's partly Covid it it seems mad not to reference the reality of the world that we're living in Um, we're trying to tread that balance where you also want escapism we all want to remember that there is life in the world that we're living today that goes beyond hand, you know, hand sanitizer and face masks. But I think it's also there are moments in the show where we really talk about it, and it feels like an incredibly cathartic thing to laugh at the ridiculousness of some of the things that we've had to live through, um, or to have a bit of gallows humour about uh, some of the things that have been incredibly painful and complicated this year. I think laughter is a really important way that humans deal with stuff that has happened to them i wonder how many how many people can you actually get in the theater when you're showing it and does everyone get a scotch egg when they turn up (laughs) (laughs) um i mean the auditorium capacity is massively reduced i to my shame don't have the exact numbers um but i'm sure the national will be able to provide them and i think just this absolute joy at being able to be back in a theatre with each other, which was definitely a thing that we all had on the first day of rehearsals. It's It's been a horrific year for the industry, and I think it feels, it feels very, very poignant, particularly at this time of year, knowing that there are people who, this time last year, were, you know, out on stage doing their thing, or they were creating music, or they were stage managing shows that were that were bringing magic to people's lives. A lot of our sector are still currently sat at home, worrying worrying about you know what the future's going to hold worrying about what the present holds so yeah i think there's a definite sharpness um to the to the joy of doing it which is about what everyone's been through this year when we were talking before jude you were saying that actually it's it's really quite a nice democratic decision by the national because it's allowed a lot of actors who are quite unknown 
to come in. So tell us a bit about the cast. What audiences go for and what they want is to see people, maybe sort of recognisable faces off the telly, um, and to have that sense of of seeing people who have a, a sort of degree of celebrity around them. And then I think that there are other theatres... Um, the Lyric Hammersmith has been really huge in this and uh, Hackney Empire in Stratford East and the Tron in Glasgow where there's been a real uh, sense of looking at Panto as being amongst all of the rest of the contemporary theatre programming that they do and therefore more of the focus is on actors who you know absolutely might have profile but are not necessarily household names and I think with The National it felt like a sort of no-brainer to celebrate the the absolute talent of the industry and that includes some performers who are more recognisable and very, very experienced, but also some who are absolutely fresh out of drama school. So both Lawrence and Georgina, who are playing Dick and Alice in the show, are graduating this year. And I think that was definitely backbone of the Nationals' decision. We're all, as a sector, trying to support students who are graduating into the industry this year because it is a scary thing. It's a scary thing to leave drama school at the best of times. It's very scary to come out into this when so many theatres are still closed so yeah I think the National really really wanted to embrace and celebrate uh, people of all ranges of experience. Can I quickly ask as well now now the National's getting into streaming is is the Panto going to be streamed at all to a paying audience? I'm not quite sure yet I think because of the because of the sort of back and forth over the last couple of weeks those conversations are ongoing so I'm sure when they finalised it they will broadcast um for want of a better word uh loud and clear what the plans are but I'm not quite sure yet I mean again it, it presents a challenge and it, I think with as with everything with this show you're going okay that's a really fun challenge how would you put on camera something which is entirely created around the idea that everyone's in the same room as each other but I think there's tons of exciting potential for doing it well thank you so much for telling us all about it and I really look forward to fighting to get a ticket to see it <laughs> yeah we'll try and make it worth your while um, <laughs> but i think it'll be a lot of fun charlotte you need to pull some strings well i know well why do you think we've got jude on the podcast <laughs> i might be on my hands and knees going can i have a family ticket jude friends and family ticket i don't suspect that <laughs> i think you get a credit for having seen it the lyric hammersmith i think you it's like the vaccine you're you're in the first wave <laughs> oh well good luck with it jude thank you thanks so much jude well we're very sorry about ed's dog joining in so much there <laughs> she gets very very excited i'd like to say she gets excited by the podcast but actually we've got somebody in redoing our kids bathroom if that's not too much information and every time they <laughs> come through the door the dog challenges them in a sort of territorial warning in a slightly ineffectual way except there's a lot of very loud barking, which is extremely annoying and really messes up the podcast. Well, it might be rather relevant because um, wait and listen to uh, the interview after next because we're very excited to have Nicole Fari on. Uh, many of our listeners will know her as a very successful fashion designer. Your and no wardrobe doubt... is stuffed with Nicole Fari wool, well, isn't it? it... I wish it were. I really wish it were. I do have one Nicole Farah jacket that I almost never take off, but there you go. She did design the most wonderful, functional, simple clothes made to last. But this is, a, this is the secret of a successful wardrobe, Charlotte, is to have uh, a few but very expensive pieces of clothing that are made well, to last. <laughs> and you are clearly at the top of the fashion pyramid apex because you've probably got a very small 
capsule wardrobe made up of high-end well-made clothes isn't that right oh i wish i please <laughs> please listeners do think that <laughs> now i noticed uh, i noticed that this week we had a mention of our podcast in the times diary although of course yet again they failed patrick kidd i'm looking at you to mention this very podcast but they did mention your crazy uh, anecdote about annoying the band member of ABC by playing his music too loudly in your flat. But it's quite nice <laughs> that there is a connection with everyone we interview. So this week, when we interview Nicole Fari, I hope you'll be wearing your Nicole Fari signature piece. The only signature piece of clothing I have <laughs> is a Vivian Westwood shirt, which I bought in 1985 from her Emporium in the King's Road, and I keep it. Uh, it's almost like a work of art. I bet. But you don't wear it. It's too good to wear. Well, I was too fat to wear it for many years. But now, now that I've shed all this lockdown weight, I might try it on again, see what it looks like. Our next guest is Mila Askarova. She's from Azerbaijan. And in 2010, after stints at the LSE, St. Martin's and Sotheby's, she founded the super cool Gazelli Art House in London's Dover Street as a sister gallery to Gazelli in Baku. Gazelli's Art House has gone from strength to strength and now has a new winter group show exhibiting three American women artists. And Mila is here today to tell us all about it. Good morning, Mila. Good morning, Ed. Thank you. And Charlotte, thank you for, for having me. Well, hello, Mila, and congratulations on Gazelli Art House's 10th anniversary. Um, now, Gazelli's is an amazing spot on Dover Street because you can see it all the way from Bond Street. If you look down um, Stafford Street, it's really right in the heart of the West End art world there. So before you tell us about the exhibition... Tell us what it's been like surviving as a woman in that highly competitive world. So when we opened, you know, I wasn't necessarily known. Um, the artists weren't really that well known as well. So it it was definitely an interesting kind of, uh, you know, in, involvement in, in the neighbourhood, let's say. And then within the years, I think the galleries kind of consistency or with I mean even during you know our 10-year period of time we've seen two or three galleries in the neighborhood open and close so so for us it was very important to have that kind of consistency of you know making sure that we that we support the artists that we've been working with throughout the whole time and and just sticking to the program so my kind of I guess yeah me me being a female um in in this kind of world, I I tried not to not to I guess think about it, um, but it it you know it probably did have some kind of impact on, you know the certain doors that were open or not. Um, so yeah. Well, I think you're quite right to ignore Charlotte's Texas Texas <laughs> Texas questioning. Although, although I have to say, no, I didn't mean it that I way. I have to say, how highlighting the fact you're a woman does allow me to segue to the fact that you are actually showing three American women artists in your latest exhibition. So I suspect there might be a theme there that you've chosen three women artists. Uh, tell us who they are and why you've grouped them together. So so this is in line with the whole 10th year anniversary kind of program we have coming up and we decided to kick it off this, you know, on this side of, of the year. On the ground floor, we've got kind of Profine, um, who is for the very first time shown in the UK. She's been shown actually once before with us um, as part of this Ninth Street uh, um, exhibition that we've held in January this year, which focused on American um, female abstract expressionist artists. Um, it was based on Mary Gabrielle's book called Ninth Street 
Street Woman, and um, it was extremely successful. So Pearl Fine is one of the kind of overlooked, in a way, artists. Had a prolific career. Uh, in was born in 1905, so she's the kind of the older generation of artists from this three artist show that we have happening. And she's it, it's it, you know she's she was one of the uh, first kind of uh, I guess examples she had. Uh, of uh, color field uh, paintings. Uh, the series is called the Cool Series, so we're keeping it extremely kind of minimal. It's all oil on canvas works and works created from 61 to 63. On the first floor, we have Jan Hayworth, who just uh, last year had a show at the Pallant House here. Now, she's obviously a bit more, I think, familiar perhaps to the audience here because of her, uh, you know, association, close link to the whole British pop art movement. Um, she's now... Uh, has been living in Salt Lake City, I think, for the past 20 or 30 years. But She worked with um, Peter Blake on the Sgt. Pepper album. Absolutely, absolutely. That Sgt. Pepper um, album cover that she contributed on triggered a whole mural that she's been doing and that actually has been exhibited at at the Pallant House. So she's she's definitely... um, the, The works that we have here, they're you know, from 2005 to 15 to 18, so fairly kind of recent-ish. But we do have one extremely interesting work from 69, um, which is called The Snake Lady. Um, and that is... I'm going to look her up next time I'm in Salt Lake City. <laughs> I go, yes, I go please, skiing no. there every year. Do you? Yeah. Oh, well, we, so, we can definitely put you in yeah. touch. She's, she's incredibly... Um, yeah, no, I, I actually was... It was my first time out there when I went to see her um, and actually meet her at the studio a year or two ago now. Um, and yeah, no, she's, she's, she's incredible. She's got an incredible kind of energy and, and, and uh, the works are, are really stunning. It and who's your, who's your third artist? And so the third one is Claudia Hart. So she's, uh, she's also American. Her kind of background is more in the digital field. So this is a display of her one video work called um, Imaginary Ruins. And it's alongside, it's, it's displayed alongside an augmented wallpaper, which basically interacts as you, as you put on a, um, an Android over, over it. Uh, she's recreated, which was quite interesting because we've done a little launch of it yesterday. She's recreated the space, the physical space space on a virtual environment called Mozilla Hubs. Now, Mozilla Hubs, I don't know if you're familiar, it's something that you log on to, you create your little avatar, and then you can navigate the exhibition space um, in the, virtually. Um, and it, it's quite interesting because you can interact with other people that, that are there, and it becomes this kind of social um, get together while looking at the artwork, whatever that is. So you basically go through the century, starting exactly. That's the exciting part, exactly. So they kind of they they, they are connected. These three artists, well, they're they're not connected. They've never been shown together before, but it's it's that generational kind of um, I guess uh, yeah angle that's being that's being explored here as well for sure. Can we really? just go back to this Mozilla Hubs thing a minute? You what you go in and you talk to other avatars or or have you done yes. it ed it's a no Mozilla. no no i've never done it so so is this now quite a common thing that the art world is using or is this something that you're doing that's very go ahead it sounds amazing so, so it is something that I think certain artists are are, are very in, involved in. Um, artists who who have obviously this as their language, the whole VR and and you know digital. Um, it's it's I think definitely picking up because it's you know unlike kind of Zoom and all these platforms, it's it's it becomes a bit more playful. So what we're looking into um, going forward is maybe you know expanding this idea of 
featuring some of the other exhibitions, which are more of kind of traditional shows on these hubs. You're a star. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Our next guest is Nicole Fahi, whom Charlotte has already introduced as the world-famous fashion designer now turned sculptor. She has a brand new show of her latest work called Couples at the Fine Arts Society on Marlborough Court just off Carnaby Street. And you went yesterday, didn't you, Charlotte? I did. And the building alone is an absolute Georgian gem worth a visit in its own right. It's full of wonderful paintings and it's all laid out like a house. So it's a wonderful setting for Nicole's new work. The exhibition is made up of 20 portraits of couples. They're small, hand-painted cement fondue. Yes, you heard me right. Cement fondue busts. (laughs) And they're all female couples. They're really hard to describe as they're utterly charming and unlike anything I've ever seen. Nicole told me yesterday that she'd found her niche, and she certainly has. So without me labouring to describe them, welcome Nicole to tell us all about them. Hello, Nicole. Hello, Charlotte. Yes, this uh, last show is a show about love, about love of women. And um, I uh, I was doing a, a large uh, uh, series of work about women love, and it was called, and it is called actually, uh, Womankind. I had two models, gorgeous girls, uh, sitting for me for the past year when the uh, pandemic arrived. And um, I was stuck at home in uh, January, February, and I decided to uh, uh, carry on talking or sculpting about love, but obviously without any models. So um, I researched the history of women's sexual liberation in mostly uh, during the 20th century. And um, I discovered this world of incredibly uh, bright women, artistic, uh, intellectual um, writers uh, from America, from England. And uh, the, the one link they had that most of them went to live in Paris uh, during the 20s, 30s, between the wars. and. Um, Looking at one couple, my first couple actually was uh, Gertrude Stein and Alisto Klass. And then... With their poodle, with their poodle basket. With their poodle basket, yes. (laughs) Yes, I also discovered by doing uh, those women that uh, most of them, a lot of them had uh, a pet that they adored. This is very, very important for a British audience. So we mentioned yes. the dogs dog, as well dogs, as the couples. Dog lovers. And I have to say, I love doing the, the, the dogs and cats, monkeys. I mean, they, they, it was... A, uh, it added, I think, some humour to the work. And also, as it was about love, it's also about love for uh, animals and uh, how incredibly important to our life. It is when we, lo- we live, you have a dog, Ed, so you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> it really uh, w- was a fantastic uh, way of spending the last eight, nine months in the company of those women. So you've got Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena yeah. Hickok. And uh, of course, we must mention the dog. 
Scotch and uh, Fala, because Fala was a very <laughs> famous dog. Actually, the most famous dogs of all the one I did. Uh, it was the dog of the President Roosevelt, and uh, it, uh, it, it had been uh, uh, sculpted and painted with the President. He's buried with the President, and uh, he, he, was, uh, he became uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's dog after the death of her husband. Um, and uh, during the 12 years they spent in the White House, um, the, um, her girlfriend... Lorena Hickok. Hickok, which yeah. she, she called her Hick, actually, and uh, <laughs> lived with them in the White House. And not a lot of people knew that. You've got Radcliffe Hall and her lover Una Tombridge. That's had a right. French, they had French bulldogs. I'm sorry to exactly. Disappear. They have yes, they do. And uh, oh wait, I can see we we're going to talk a lot about the dogs. I know. <laughs> this wasn't meant to be a theme. Let's talk about Radcliffe and Una first. <laughs> we can mention the bulldogs in parentheses. Radcliffe uh, Hole uh, um, wrote this uh, very famous book, which was one of the first lesbian books, which actually were not going to be published in in England for many the many well years. Well of loneliness. The, exactly, the well of loneliness. It was uh, about her lesbian relationship with Unat Vorbidge. And uh, um, she... Um, did not, I mean, all, all of them, actually, all these women never hid their, uh, maybe the only one who did not like to come out as a lesbian was Greta Garbo. You did Greta Garbo with Mercedes de Costa. De, de Acosta. And her Borzoi, of course. Pardon me? Her Borzoi. <laughs> well, it's a Borzoi, yes, a Borzoi dog, beautiful dog, very much. And they all look alike, their owners, a little oh. bit, don't you think? I mean, yes. that dog is very elegant and uh, absolutely gorgeous, blonde dog, uh, long limbs. No, I think Greta Garbo was a really interesting story because uh, Mercedes de Acosta is less blonde and gorgeous. <laughs> so, and, and you were telling me the story about I want to be alone. Greta Garbo had affairs with men and women and uh, women, but uh, she never spoke uh, uh, freely about her women affair and did not want it to be uh, told. And uh, she met uh, Mercedes de Acosta and they did have a long relationship, which uh, after being sexual was more uh, a friendship. And they exchanged hundreds of letters where uh, Mercedes of, threw her love to uh, uh, the face of uh, Greta Garbo, who was much more um, uh, private and did not like that at all. At, in the end, it became such an obsessive uh, love affair that she decided to stop seeing Mercedes. And uh, she threw to her face those very famous words, I want to be alone. Well, this is, uh, this is marvellous stuff. What a perfect way to start a Sunday morning. <laughs> well, you must go and have a look at them and, because they are good fun. They're full of spirit as well. You know, it, uh, it shows the, their intelligence. I think, I hope I have shown in their face, their character, the, their depths and their, their intelligence, you know, the determination of uh, who they were and uh, what they were doing. Well, I'm going to steal Ed's usual question and um, <laughs> ask if you have a favourite. <laughs> I do have a couple of favourites, actually. Oh, um, no, yeah, Nicole, you're normally was... meant to say they're all my children and I cannot be the favourite, but <laughs> you're going to break well, the do. convention. 
<laughs> yeah, but I, I, I cannot speak about the 21, the 20 couples. But I can, I can uh, speak about uh, one couple, um, Sylvia Beach and Adrienne Monnier. And uh, Sylvia Beach was an American uh, woman who, in 1917, went to Paris. And as she was walking Rue de l'Odéon near um, on the left bank of Paris, she went to this uh, bookstore, uh, which was run by Adrienne Monnier. And they fell in love at first sight. And uh, they became a couple, the two of them. And uh, Sylvia Beach decided to open a, a bookstore as well, which the first one she opened was opposite um, Les Amis du Livre, Rue de l'Odéon. And later on, she opened the very famous bookstore called Shakespeare and Co. And when I was a, a student in Paris, I spent hours in that bookstore. So because I, I knew that uh, bookstore, I love that bookstore, it still exists and it still has the same charm it had uh, when they, they opened it. Uh, it uh, that couple was very important to me. Well, I love the one of uh, Jane Bowles with the and woman um, Sharifa, Sharifa that she met in a market and she, uh, became yeah. obsessed. It's so powerful because you've got Jane Bowles in her white sleeveless dress and pearls, yeah, and then Sharifa in her full-on abaya. Yeah, abaya. yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. us about, about quickly about that w one. Well, Jane um, was married to Paul Bowles. Obviously, they went to live in Tangier. They were both homosexuals. They remained together all their lives. They had a really strong bond, the two of them. And um, Jane Bowles were a writer as well as uh, Paul. And she was one day in the market in Tangier and uh, she met this grain um, uh, seller and her name is Amina Bakalia, but she was called Sharifa. And she fell completely under the spell of that woman. She brought her back to the house and they lived, the three of them. And uh, um, Sharifa was really, she, she really put a spell on uh, Jane Bowles and uh, took away from Jane her money, her jewellery, a house, um, and uh, also uh, uh, maybe a, a will to leave. She, Jane became ill, and uh, um, it's a very strange uh, story, the two of them. Because anyway, they're just wonderful. wonderful. De Force. So <laughs> incredible. And I'm well, thinking that you. after this podcast, people are going to be high-tailing it to see your wonderful exhibition. Well, I hope so, because I think uh, I think it's important to always, you know, for me, it's wonderful to be able to sculpt, but I want to learn. So I think uh, although I, I do larger work, uh, this is something that uh, I want to carry on doing all my life, you know, little portraiture and uh, introducing people that maybe uh, you have read, but you don't know what they look like or you heard about or you, you've seen uh, their paintings, but you don't know uh, their faces. So I think I think uh, I'll learn and maybe somebody will learn also by looking at them. Thank Brilliant. you so much. So Nicole's sculptures really are worth seeing. 
And I like to think this is what we're good at on this podcast, really ferreting out and discovering some really wonderful, unusual art and places to visit. That's all we've got time for this week. But please keep checking countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter for our newsletters about everything cultural and all sorts of other things and the Great British Brands Christmas Gift Guide. And you can also listen to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette talking to all the big names in interior design. You can find that and all details of how to book for Dick Whittington at the National Theatre on our website, which is, as I'm sure you'll know by now, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Next week will be our last podcast before Christmas. Don't all weep at once, so please make sure you listen. (laughs) We'll be back in January, unfortunately, but that is all we have time for this week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.